and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Just a moment of personal privilege to say what a great joy it is to be with you all this morning and um, almost every Sunday and it's especially great to be leading worship with my spouse. We today launch our husband and wife megachurch enterprise. Um, we were kind of hoping there'd be a few more people here today, but it's okay. It's a good start. Just kidding. Let us pray. God, be in our hearing. Be in our digesting of your texts. Bring your spirit to aid in our understanding. May your heart be in the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, that you, and you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for the Lord has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon the Lord while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy upon them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The word of the Lord. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 13. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, 
But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every year, Atlanta's Foodwell Alliance hosts a fruit tree sale, which uses the proceeds to, publicly, to support publicly accessible orchards and other urban gardening projects around Atlanta. It's so awesome. Apple, peach, and serviceberry trees, but also strawberry and blueberry and blackberry plants. For the price of a few pints of strawberries, I now have two nice patches of strawberry plants that year after year should give our family beautiful, sweet, and hyper-local berries. But I need to tell you something. During our recent and very extended house renovation project, I neglected those berries. They were for almost a full year buried under some building materials and impossible to get to. And as we began cleaning up the yard this spring and summer, I was so sad and angry to find not only the tender plants buried under some materials, but also being choked by a very aggressive vine called Creeping Charlie. No relation to Dave's eldest child. My neglect had quite possibly spelled the death of these plants. I know it sounds kind of dramatic, but I almost cried when I realized the condition of these plants and my own culpability in their fate. They were a tangled mess. Speaking of a tangled mess, about our texts this morning, First, we have Isaiah, in which Professor Brown, you'll have to, I apologize in advance. First, we have Isaiah, in which it is not totally clear who is speaking to whom and or exactly when or where this speech takes place. It occurs at a uh, sort of flexion point in the text, and it's not quite clear exactly what's going on. In Luke, well, there are two historical events described about which we know very little. Jesus offers seemingly contradictory advice about repentance, and then there's a parable because, of course, there is. 
I wonder how the hearers responded to the somewhat enigmatic language of the prophet and of Jesus. Both of these texts recount speeches in public settings and address very public audiences, many of whom have witnessed and experienced suffering and violence and trauma. In Isaiah, the recently exiled communities have likely returned to Jerusalem, but remain internally displaced and economically vulnerable and perhaps disillusioned by the unfulfilled promise of full restoration to the land. In Luke, the hearers come to Jesus telling horrifying stories of the violent deaths of some Galileans seemingly at the hands of Pilate and some Judeans in a tragic collapse of a portion of the Jerusalem wall. So it seems just a little bit weird to me that the word being preached in both of these contexts is one of repentance and not necessarily one of comfort, at least not in the way that we might expect. What kind of answer is repentance to the cries of the suffering? I think this is an apropos question for 2022 as well, isn't it? On the one hand, yes, those who have maintained power in and even profited from a global health crisis, racialized violence, international conflict, and now even an historic stripping of rights, those people, yes, indeed, let the wicked forsake their way. But what about those among us who have suffered loss upon loss over the last two years? What about those who are lonely or afraid? Those who see the disproportionate toll that a global pandemic has taken in their communities? Those who experience daily the accumulated effects of histories of exclusion, oppression, and occupation? What about those who now fear that their marriages, their intimate partnerships, and even their bodily autonomy are vulnerable to the whims of politics? Should they, should we repent? In the past month or so, David Lewicki and Bobby Renbanks have preached wonderful sermons on the theme and Christian responsibility to practice true inclusion welcome and unity, even in the context of the political division that is sometimes now wounding and violent. This call to unity, I confess, has been a little bit hard for me to hear, maybe I'm alone, because I still find myself filled with rage and even a base level of fear when I listen to people like former governors who speak in a way that is moralizing, shaming, and dehumanizing telling me I should pray to God and accept responsibility if I were to find myself pregnant unexpectedly. Friends, right now I confess that inclusion is hard. Unity is hard. If there were a word, though, that I were less inclined to heed in this moment than those, it might well be repent. Really. What kind of answer is repentance to the cries of the suffering?
Now, it's easy to think that by saying repent, Jesus is somehow suggesting that we are suffering because we have done wrong. In most common parlance, we dramatically truncate the power and meaning of the concept of repentance. Repentance is so often associated with remorse. To say that someone is repentant is to suggest that they feel sorry for their wicked ways, perhaps even ashamed. To repent is to confess and ask forgiveness. As the story goes, by repenting, we thus avoid God's eternal judgment. This truncated popular understanding of repentance is rather limited, however, and easily slips into a kind of utilitarian, transactional understanding. It implies that we repent so that we receive salvation, or at least avoid eternal suffering. And it suggests that salvation is entirely a matter of our own action. In contrast, the fuller meaning of repentance, of metanoia, implies an internal shift of the heart and mind. It is to reconsider, to think anew, to turn around one's entire worldview. It is a turning toward as much as it is a turning away, a drawing close to the source of all that is good and living and loving, But both the prophet Isaiah and Jesus' parable remind us that the reality to which we turn is not always entirely understandable. At least a part of it always remains a mystery. What kind of answer is repentance to the cries of the suffering? In Luke, Jesus offers very confusing and ambiguous answers, I think, to the questions born out of human suffering. On the one hand, he refuses the simplistic moral calculus that might provide the hearer some kind of shallow reassurance. Were the Galileans murdered or the Judeans crushed, perhaps because they were somehow more sinful, their violent deaths explainable in some way? as a divine retribution. To this, Jesus issues an emphatic no. In the same breath, however, he adds, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. To the grieving and the fearful, Jesus says repent. There's even an urgency about his response that the time for repentance is now before we're out of time. Make haste. And then he tells this weird little parable that I think slows the record speed. I mean, to me it's so weird that I can imagine the hearers were probably like, what the... Jesus redirects the hearer's attention to a single tree, interrupting the urgency of their questions and their catastrophic imaginations, and even seemingly of his own response. And like Isaiah, he reaches for agricultural and food metaphors to talk about repentance. Here we have a single fig tree producing nary a fig for three full years. The landowner is ready to cut it down, impatient to put in something more productive to make better use of the soil. But the gardener intervenes, 
asking for another year to tend this small tree with love. The gardener wants time, time to clear the soil around the struggling tree, to tend its roots, and importantly, he wants to fertilize it. Like in the old school way, talking about manure, poop. Jesus here uses a term that elsewhere in the Bible is used metaphorically and literally to describe the most undesirable, even revolting of circumstances. It is filthy and unsanitary and generally something to be removed, to be placed outside the city gates, something from which human persons and communities should be protected. But here it is, the lifeline for this fig tree. Of course, the story is enigmatic, as parables are, but what if, what if Jesus is speaking about the capacity of God's grace, the wideness in God's mercy, the loving attention of the gardener to take the worst of it, our suffering, our grief, and yes, our sin, and to make of it a nurturing environment in which new life might spring forth. What if? What if the suffering, grief, and fear are not erased or made into nothing, but they are transformed? Slowly, inch by inch, weeds are cleared and the soil is amended, Sometimes when we're gardening, we do this over and over to seemingly little effect. And then suddenly out of this humble dwelling emerges a bud, a promise of new life so close that we can almost taste it. The sign of a complete turning around, a metanoia. I worked hard over the spring and summer trying to save these strawberry plants from the weeds that threaten to choke them. There's a lot more to do. The weeds keep coming, new ones even. The work is tedious and time-consuming. I've asked myself several times if it's worth it. I've gotten it mostly cleared. The dogs have even occasionally helpfully fertilized the patch. And we got some strawberries, not a lot, but some. Note that in the sermon I have not mentioned the half-eaten tomatoes on my plants or the cucumber that keeps flowering with no fruit or the new weeds creeping from under the neighbor's fence. Friends, there's a lot that threatens to overwhelm us. We can hardly digest one loss before the next one comes. I wonder, though, if what Jesus is doing in this parable is redirecting our frenetic attention to the one thing, the one tree, the one place where just below the surface new life beckons, not forsaking our world, our work in the world, of course, but what if we make it our practice to draw near to that unfailing source of divine love, seeing in it the promise of the seed? to allow our roots to be tended, to receive love, and even to be transformed. As my colleague Ellen Marshall has argued, sometimes we practice hope by doing everything we can to unearth a moment of beauty and then to defend it vigorously from all that threatens to push it back 
underground. The suffering, the grief, the fear are not denied. We do not pretend. Repentance does not demand that our suffering, our grief, our fear are erased or made into nothing. It invites us to draw nearer to God, who can transform it. And that's what kind of answer repentance is to the cries of the suffering. I'll close with a reminder of what Isaiah says. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Amen. As a mother.
Peaceful rest, peaceful rest. Been wildly. 